1: Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool, and when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial
0: life. Hello, James. Hi, Scott. How are you this week? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. Yeah.
1: About to wrap up a little mini-series?
0: Yes. So, um, a couple episodes ago, we talked about the 10... Investing principles uh, to help you be a better investor, like ways to improve investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we kind of talked asset allocation last time, which is bigger picture, stocks and bonds. Mm-hmm. How to figure out where to where to put funds and why. Walked you through a process to think through there. Um, let's continue. Uh, we'll call this one "to tilt or not to tilt." Great tilt. <laughs> like yeah, a, like a poker
1: term. What do you mean by tilt? Yeah.
0: <laughs> so we're gonna. It's gonna mean a couple of different things, um, but. The we'll think of it from like where can you invest around the globe, I think is one way we could think of it. Um, then we can also think about what is considered like a standard market index. We'll talk about that a little bit. And then why you might want to shift away from the standard market index or what why would you think you might want to do that? Perfect.
1: And I think today will be nice because it will put the finishing touches on what we've talked about of our first episode. I think there's this Conception or this thought that to be a successful investor, you have to pick the right stock, or you have to know when to get in and out of the market at the right times, or you you have to know information other people don't. And the first episode is just about dispelling some of that. Like, focus on these 10 things, and and that's the foundation. Last episode was how do you mix between stocks and bonds? And now let's get more into the nitty gritty of that with what you're talking about. So, now that I might know the 10 steps to success, I know how much I should have in stocks versus how much I should have in bonds. Uh, where do I start with the next decision of should I tilt or should I not tilt? And what does that even mean?
0: Yeah. Well, why don't we start big picture? So to say you'd figured out you want to put, I don't know, let's say you want to put 80% in the stock market and 20% in the bond market. So the question is, where do you put that 80%? Okay. Right. The
1: stock
0: market. Right. The stock market. Right. But then on, on when we talked about on that episode, two episodes ago, we talked about how um, the stock market's global. Right, So a lot of people will think about the S&P 500, that's like the 500 largest companies in the United States. But in the US even, there's there's thousands of companies you could invest in in the United States alone. Right, And then if we look at the global stock market, at the end of 2019, the United States stock market as a whole was 54% of the world's market. Um, the international developed markets, so that's places like the UK and Japan and like Europe... That was 32% mm-hmm. of the world market. And then the rest was what we call emerging markets. Mm-hmm. So that's like China and Brazil and India.
1: Right. Meaning if you look at every single publicly traded company that you could invest in, out of all that value, 54% of that value is in the US, 32 is in international developed markets, and 14% is in emerging markets.
0: Yep, exactly. So one of the first questions you can look at is, well, what percentages do you want to allocate to different those different um, areas around the world? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people might choose to just go allocate the way that the market is doing it. Yep. Um, some I actually mo I actually would almost say most don't do that. Right. <laughs> most almost ha- always have what's called a homeward bias on right. their portfolio. Right. Yeah. And is a homeward bias bad? Is it something I should avoid? Is it good? Is it just personal preference? So I think when you look at the the data over time, it typically makes sense to invest across the global spectrum but almost everyone <laughs> invests with a bit of a homeward bias to make themselves right. feel better right because we know it's easier to know what's going on in our own country in our own geopolitical environment with our own tax structure than it is to know what's going on around the world yeah and, and and
1: on top of that you look at the you turn on financial media and you're always seeing what's going on in your home market like you almost have no idea what's going on in international markets and right. energy markets and things like that so um I think th- there, there definitely is a compelling reason to diversify between all of them. You know, if you look at the u s market, you might measure the big companies in the u s by the, the standard and poorest 500, the s and p 500 mm-hmm. which has been really hot recently, but really hot before this from to 2000, 2010, it lost money over that ten year time period. Yeah, now how do you also diversify also own some international, own some emerging markets, even just according to their proportionate breakdown in the of the representation of the global stock market you had a much better experience. So it's going to help you maintain same great returns over time, but it's going to help you do so in a better way.
0: Yeah, global diversification, as would be investing even within the US, we'll talk a minute about different sizes of company you can invest in. But the more asset classes you go into and diversify, the more you have to be willing to say, I'm sorry to myself, mm-hmm. right? Because like, there's no way you're going to be the top guy at the barbecue, like with your friends. Mm-hmm. Well, not that we get to have those right now with COVID, but <laughs> you're on your happy hour with your friends, um, talking about what's going on. And someone will be like, Hey, I'm doing so great. I'm all in the SP five hundred this year. It's going gangbusters. Well, you're gonna have that too, being globally diversified. Mm-hmm. You're probably gonna be better off over a 30 year time period than they will be. But there could easily be periods like this decade, the S P five hundred so far is doing better than global diversification. Yeah. Um, but then back in the two thousands you were better off because the S&P wasn't doing as yeah, well.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think this is a good starting point of, you know, if you just look at that, it's helpful to know. Probably not the best to be all US, probably not the best to be all international, but it's, yeah. its personal preference. And if being all in the US is going to help you stick with your portfolio at the end of the day, then, then maybe that's the best thing for you. But if you just want to look at what works best purely from a financial standpoint, uh, probably diversifying across something with this as a starting
0: point. Mm-hmm. Yep. So U.S. international emerging US, market. And
1: then the rest split mm-hmm. across the board elsewhere.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Then when we turn to just like one of those markets, so let's just go to the United States. As we said before, the S&P 500, the 500 largest companies in the U.S., um, you know, there's actually thousands of companies in the United States. So, you know, you could easily invest in a different index called the Russell 3000, and that's 3000 large, the 3000 largest companies in the United States. Um, So you get large companies and small companies in that. Um, So one of the things you have to look at is how do I want to diversify my money within a specific location like the United States? Do I want to just invest in large companies? Do I want to invest in large, medium and small companies? When we go look back over the evidence, what we see is that over long periods of time, investing in small companies does have a bit more of what we will call a uh, equity risk premium to it, meaning that you're taking more risk, so you should see more return over time. Mm-hmm. That also comes with more volatility, meaning it, it moves up and down <laughs> kind of in a scarier movement both uh, along the way, um, but it does help increase your return over time. So it's something that you need to look at.
1: Yeah, and and uh, what you look at is if you just break down the U.S. market, like Scott's saying, into big companies, medium companies, and small companies, there are far more small companies and medium companies than there are large companies. But those large companies are so much bigger that they make up a much larger percentage of the the overall breakdown. Yeah. You know, for example, I'm just looking at the S&P 500 right now in a breakdown. And right now, Apple's the largest company as we're recording this, and it makes up about 6.5% of the S&P 500. You look at the 500th company in that, and it's Under Armour. And Under Armour makes up about nine one hundredths of one percent of the S and P 500. Right now, there's tons and tons of companies like Under Armour, where they're this small company that make up a small, tiny fraction of the overall uh, pool mm-hmm. you're investing in. But when you look at this, you you don't you can start with what's the representation of big companies, and medium companies, and small companies, and that's a good starting point. But like Scott saying. If you want to increase your returns over time or increase your your potential for outsized returns over time...
0: That's the key, potential for yes. returns, because we never know what the future pretent- returns will be. But when we look back over time, we can see you should have an expected risk premium. You should expect to see more return for those small companies than yes. the large ones over and long periods of time.
1: we've seen that it's that small companies have outperformed by about 2% per year over large companies. Will yep. that continue? It's probable if you just look at the the reasons for that and what's happened. But like you're saying, you, you can't guarantee it, but it's, if you want to look at how do I enhance my portfolio, you might want to look at only more small companies and large companies.
0: That's a good point, uh, moment where you're good. You made a great point. I just want to put put a pin in that a little bit. There are, there's no such thing as absolutes in investing. Right, The S&P 500, since as far back as time can go, has returned about 10% per year. That's the average. Right, The small cap companies has returned about anywhere from 12 to 13 on average. Mm-hmm. Right, But we never know what the next year is going to bring. Mm-hmm. So we always have to look at what is expected. What do we think is probable of happening? But there's never a guarantee that it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I, you have to remember that when you go invest in this manner.
1: You have to. And I, and I think we fall into this rhythm of thinking that there are formulas to investing and in what I I can expect to squeeze out of this asset class or this type of investment based on what's happened historically, and it is a really, really good starting point. That's really all we have as a starting point. Yes, but it's not the be-all, end-all. There's no predictive, no, there's no certainty in that. No, um, and so understanding that is important because as we look at the last ten years, again as an example,
0: th-
1: what we would expect to see historically hasn't happened. You know, yep. small companies have not necessarily outperformed mm-hmm. large. We'll talk about value and growth in a second as well. And the premium we'd expect there hasn't necessarily happened. So, if you are going to do this, if you're going to say, Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable owning more in small companies than would be represented just in the market as a whole, you have to be willing to accept that you might go for a year and several years at a time 10, 10, <laughs> and 15, and not
0: see the yeah. workout. And so, yeah. it, it
1: does require a certain level of conviction. Otherwise, you're going to be let down, you're going to be disappointed, and you're probably going to end up making less money over time.
0: That's ex- yes, absolutely. So, Um, where should we, so I think the other place we could go with that is when you think about the other dice, the way you can dissect a, a a stock market we did small, medium and large, the other way you can do it is things we call value versus growth. Mm -hmm. So that's really looking at like, uh, the different characteristics of a company and value style companies typically, again, carry a bit more of a equity risk premium than growth companies. So you typically see them perform better over long periods of time.
1: Right. And again, that's been something that's been really challenging the past decade. This is the past decade what's done best? It's it's tech stocks, and what yep. are tech stocks? They're, they're big growth companies, so large exact large cap growth. You got it. You expect, and and the thing about investing that's so hard for people to wrap their mind around is like, how how do I expect a value company to outperform a great big company like Amazon or Apple or Tesla? And, mm-hmm. and there's this sense that how could there possibly be a better company? Like these are the best companies in the world when you're talking about mm-hmm. these big growth stocks. And one thing that people have to remember is investment isn't, it's not about finding the best company. It's about finding the right company at the best price. And that's where value comes in. It's what price are you paying relative to the returns that you can expect from this? And you could theoretically have a bad company outperform a good company if the price you're buying it for is right. And so that's not the exact case of value, but it's buying something at a discount that has some more room to rise as opposed to buying something that could be a great company, but you're buying at a big inflated expensive price.
0: Yep, you also run into something else that's called the law of large numbers. Mm-hmm. Um as companies get the size of like the Amazons and the Apples of the world, it eventually gets to a point where for them to grow by 10 or 20%, the amount of in- of revenue that they have to create to keep that growth trajectory going just becomes almost impossible. Right. Because they eventually can't be the size of like the United States Economy, right? So, so you just get to a point where it makes it harder and harder for them to keep achieving the growth and the numbers that they are. Um, so, it's just another thing to be mindful of.
1: Yeah, you look at Amazon as a perfect example of this. Is Amazon IPO in 1997, and it's been the most successful IPO in history. Like the the annual return that you see on Amazon stock has never been matched by any other company. And so, people say, okay, great, that's on Amazon. Well, mm-hmm. for Amazon to do that for the next 23 years. Means it would be literally worth more than every single company in the world combined, right? And so it's at some point—not to say Amazon can't keep doing well—you can't just rest upon past performance. Makes it with an individual company or with an even an asset class like we're looking at.
0: Yeah, makes it very difficult. So if we let's go let's go back bigger picture on this for a second. Imagine you want to own the all three thousand companies in the United States. The question that you then ask yourself is like. Do I just want to own those 3,000 companies based on market size? So I own the most of Amazon and Apple um, and, and Facebook and down the line. And then I own the least amount of the smallest companies, right? right. That's one way to do it. That's called market capitalization weighting. Right. So like traditional indexes, that's how they do this. So if you just went and bought the Russell 3000, um, you would basically be like, if you put a X and Y axis on a white sheet of paper, and imagine that all of those companies fill in that, that th- those 3000 companies are just filled in on that page, you would own basically like dead center of that. So you should just track along with the, the Russell 3000. And when it does really well, you do really well. And if it does poorly, you do poorly. And the next question you can ask yourself is, do I want to tilt? So this is the tilt or not to tilt. Do I want to tilt my portfolio in any way? Right. For this, do I have any, you know, and what we've seen historically over time is that if you tilt a little to small over large companies and a little to value over growth companies, that can help your return over time, long periods of time, Right. Um, which you just mentioned, we will get challenged at times because it comes down to probabilities. And we can even look at some of those probabilities coming up. There'll be periods of time when like it won't be paying off for you. And if you're not willing to stay committed to it, then it's really not going to pay off for you. Mm-hmm. So you should only do it if you're willing to stay committed to it. Mm-hmm. But then you just need to go look and see like, how do I feel about that? Okay, that's how I want to build my portfolio. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What's his, I, I saw someone on Twitter say something about this, of of tilting your portfolio is a lot like a marriage. Like it can, it can be tough to stay in at times. And if you get out, it's expensive type of a deal. <laughs> the quotes, but, um, <laughs> but it's true. You If you're not committed it can end up being very expensive, is I yeah. think what he said. And, and that's true. You know, if you do this and you say, oh, it's not working out, it's been two years, it can be very expensive to get out, mm-hmm. not in the sense if it actually costs you anything, but the loss, the opportunity cost lost is, is a very real thing. So what, what is a good way to think of this, Scott, as you're looking at this, like, can I expect this to work out
0: over a 10-year period? Could I expect this to work out over a 30-year period? Like, how long yeah. do I need to wait for this so, to work out? So you'll remember we did a previous episode where we looked at investing, and we looked at how, I think, I think what we did was we teed it up for you all and said like, which of these investment options would you prefer? Right. Right. Where, where the, it was like, you know, every. 53 sp- probability of success after a day. I and mean, Right. 60% after a month. We, yeah. We, we were, year. we tricked you a little bit, but because we gave you the results of the S&P 500 over different periods of time. Right. And we eventually got, you eventually got to a period of time where the probability was just so in your favor, if you could stick it out that it was worth it, right. right? And so the way that when we think about the probabilities of, of the the market, we've already discussed those, so we're not going to hit it here again. But when you think about the probabilities of like, would value beat growth if you wanted to tilt? And when and just to be clear, um, I think neither of us are really going to be big fans of someone saying, I'm all in on this one strategy. Right. Like I'm only going to invest in small value stocks. Right? I mean, you could do that, but that- you're kind of making it very difficult for you to win then and to stick with it. So it's more about like, if you don't want to just own the market, like as it is, if you want to tilt, look at to tilt, but don't maybe just go all in on one position. Now that's obviously up to you. You'd make your own choices. But when we look at the concept of like value beating growth. Well, over a one year basis, about 59% of the time for as long as we can see data, it's worked. Over a five-year rolling period basis, 73% of the time it worked. Over a 10-year basis, 82% of the time it worked. So you can see the probabilities are in your favor, but at the same time, you have to be okay with the other side of that coin. Right. 18% of the time, you're still going to get a return, but you're not going to get as much of a return as if you just held the market return. Exactly. Right? So it's like, what, what makes the most sense for you? Right.
1: Yeah. And, and,
0: and similar numbers to
1: small being large over any given one-year time period, 56% of the time. Small companies have outperformed large companies, but that's 44% of the time that they haven't over five years, 62% of the time, small beats large and over a 10 year time period, 72% of the time. I think if you extend this to 20, it's like 90, 98, 99%. So it's it yeah. it's pretty uh, probable that it's going to happen, mm-hmm. but there are some years that it's just hard to do. And it's not just hard to do because, oh, I'm underperforming that investment. It's hard to do because I'm underperforming the only investment I ever see when I turn on the TV or when I open my stock app or when I open whatever. You're constantly being measured against the S&P 500, which can be a great benchmark if that's what you're trying to track. But if you're trying, if you're owning different asset classes that outperform that over time, that might not be the best benchmark to track day by day.
0: Yeah. The challenges. Well, and and in all honesty, like, benchmarks aren't really that beneficial to us, um, in the end, because what really should matter is, is how's the portfolio built for the goals that you have for yourself and the time horizon that you have, and then optimize it for that time horizon. Right. And if you're investing even just internationally, well, then the S and P 500 is a horrible benchmark because it has only the 500 largest companies in the United States. Right. 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 Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, I think
1: that's a that's a good way to wrap this up. Obviously, none of this is, is specific advice. Everyone's going to build their own portfolio, but it's, it helps provide that framework for what do you need to think of. What are the ten principles that you start with? Then, how do you think about how much do you have in stocks and bonds? And Then, how much do you? How do you think about how much you have in different types of stocks and what's your goal at that? So, I think that
0: that kind of ties it up. Anything you want to add to that, Scott? Uh, no. The only thing that I would add is that the stuff that we've talked about today. Being like, do you invest in internationally, global diversification? Do you invest to small versus large? Do you invest to value versus growth? All of that is pervasive, um, persistent, and robust. And what I mean by that is you can go look at that in the US market and in the international markets and in the emerging markets, and it works. Right. Right. It's not and a fad. so it's not a fad. So it's like, you really just want to go put money to work in a manner where there's a really high chance of it actually helping you. And if that's not the case, um, don't go do it. So there, you'll see a lot of fads that people will say like, Hey, go do this. I have this silver bullet solution. Like just be skeptical. Um, it's pretty rare that, um, there's some new f- fangled way to go increase expected return yeah. or help you out. So just be, be careful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good advice. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. See y'all you next week. Thank you for listening to another episode of the real personal finance podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial or other professional services.